Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 8. I intend to cover verses 18 through 40. The story of Simon Magus' Simony, how he offered money to buy the gift of giving the Holy Spirit, and then we will take up the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Our context is this. In the first 17 verses of chapter 8, we saw the, it's Philip, the deacon slash evangelist, assuming that's the same Philip, went up from Jerusalem and got a bunch of people saved. Then the Holy Spirit fell upon them when Peter and John came up from Jerusalem to pray that they might be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they had a big revival up there. Now, Simon was in the middle of this revival. We pick up the story in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Well, now what did Simon see when the Holy Spirit fell on these believers? How could he see something spiritual? The answer is, he had to have seen the recipients of the filling of the Holy Spirit he had to see them speaking in tongues. Or maybe as in Acts 19, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, those 12 apostles at Ephesus, they prophesied and did miracles. Let me read you a quote from John Gill. The extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit as to be able to speak with tongues, to prophesy and work miracles, and that these are meant by the Holy Ghost is clear from what follows, which cannot be understood in any other sense, and seeing it was something visible which Simon could discern, and therefore cannot mean internal grace and an increase of that. So here we see speaking in tongues implied, which is the usual pattern, despite the fact the cessationists don't like speaking in tongues. It's there in the book of Acts, and they do their darndest to try to explain it away. But if Christians today would just accept the pattern for them, they would be speaking in tongues too and being blessed thereby. Here's another quote from John Gill. He, the Simon, saw that upon this Men began to prophesy upon the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, men began to prophesy and to speak with diverse tongues they had never learned, and to work miracles, cure men of their diseases. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, By hearing these speak with different tongues and work miracles, that's how Simon Magus saw that the Holy Spirit was given. And so then he offered them money for the power, the so-called great power of God. That was his nickname, the great power of God. He'd been working all kinds of miracles before, but that wasn't good enough for him now because he saw that, boy, this Holy Spirit's bigger than anything I ever had, bigger than any power that I ever had before. He was still offering to pay for what he didn't have, which shows how much more powerful the miracles of God are. And by the way, you've heard the term simony before. This came up during the Middle Ages, during the established church time of the Catholic Church, where rich aristocrats and lords would buy seas by clerical positions, and the spiritual people in the church, such as they were, would say this is simony. They based it on Simon's offering money for the Holy Spirit. In the Middle Ages, they offered money not for the Holy Spirit, but for a living, a parish. We go to verse 19. At Acts 8:19, Simon continues speaking, saying, Give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon didn't ask to pay that he might receive the Holy Spirit, which is ironic. He could have done so for free. It's grace. It's a gift. At gifts, you don't pay for gifts. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And he also didn't have to pay to lay hands on anyone they may receive, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. I've done that many times. Nobody ever paid me anything for it. So Simon was, he, he, he was so used to thinking about money and power, money and power, demonic power in his sorcerer case. And he just kept behaving in an unregenerate fashion. Now, of course, we talked last time about whether he was saved or not. That's a big debate. 
I, I'm not sure which way to fall on that. I think he was, but at any rate, he, he was behaving in an unregenerate fashion by offering money, as we'll see from Peter's reaction. Now, John Gill says that only the apostles could lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, to which I say that is nonsense. Ananias prayed for Paul to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias was not an apostle. Now, Simon said, give me this power. What power was he referring to? The power to receive the Holy Spirit, to speak in tongues, to do miracles himself? Or was it the power to lay hands on other people and have them receive the Holy Spirit? And I think it's the latter. Because he says right here, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. We go to verses 20 through 23. But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now that is a heap big, powerful reaction. Peter was really upset. So we're talking about a fairly major sin here. And in fact, Peter really curses him. He, he imprecates him. He says, may your silver be destroyed with you. Now somebody here says that Peter did not imprecate his person. That's John Gill says that. He said, this is just a prediction, not an imprecation. It doesn't sound like a prediction to me. Of course, I think it might have something to do with the translation. And I'm not a linguist enough to know if you can translate it that way and i've seen some of these imprecatory type verses in the new testament people the commentators will try to soften it a little bit by translating it differently but it doesn't sound like a prediction to me sounds like a curse may your silver be destroyed with you may you be destroyed well i don't have any problem with that to be honest with you because you know if some things are serious and if people do serious things they're destroyed for example you murder somebody that's an extremely serious thing and what happens to you you get destroyed with capital punishment well you do in a just society you get you don't get thrown in jail for a lifetime you get destroyed you get executed and that's perfectly just so i don't have any problem with peter saying what he did to simon it shows that what Simon did was something that we ought not to do because it's very serious. Peter says, you have no part or share in this matter. And I think that means praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit. King James says, you have no part in this ministry, which means you can't go along ministering to us, Peter, John, and Stephen, like has been going on in Samaria. But I think it's more precise than that. He's saying, you have no part or share in praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit because your heart's not right. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. Now, this repent is what makes people think that that Simon is not a Christian here, but, you know, well, there's a lot of Christians I know doing some stuff they need to repent of. He could have been a Christian that just screwed up. I don't know why. I don't know why that word repent would automatically indicate that Simon was not a Christian. Now, Adam Clark points out that Peter did not think that Simon was hopelessly lost because he did say repent. He didn't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And even then, I think people that blaspheme the Holy Spirit then stop doing it. I believe they can get saved. That's probably contrary to the common common opinion. But at any rate, Peter says, Simon, you can repent. You can be forgiven. The intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And then he says, I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Peter is most probably citing Deuteronomy 29:18, according to the NIV Study Bible. That verse says this, Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Uh, you might 
recall the famous verse in Hebrews 12:15, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. I assume the author of the book of Hebrews is talking to Christians. He says, make sure that no one falls. He sounds like he's talking to Christians and he's saying, hey, you can have a root of bitterness spring up in you. Well, if Christians can have a root of bitterness spring up in you, why cannot Simon Magus, Christian, be poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity, even though he's a Christian? So, we go to Acts 8.24. Please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, what was Simon's attitude when he said that? We can't hear him. We can only read the bare naked text that does not give us all the affect, the emotional affect of what he might be saying. Sounds to me like he was genuinely repentant. John Gill doubts that there was sincere, heartfelt repentance here. Let me read his quote. Whether he was serious and in good earnest in this is a question, since there is no reason to believe he truly repented from the accounts given of him by ancient writers who always represent him as an opposer of the apostles in their doctrine, as the father of all heresies, as a blasphemous wretch who gave out that he was the father in Samaria, the Son in Judea, and the Holy Ghost in other places, and as a very lewd and wicked man who carried about with him a whore, whose name was Helena, whom he called the mother of the universe, and gave out the angels were made by her and the world by him, and many other errors, blasphemies, and impieties. As I said in the previous audio, this Simon Magus had a great reputation, didn't he? But now Adam Clark doubts Simon's bad reputation that occurred after this incident. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, He is generally supposed to have grown worse and worse, opposing the apostles and the Christian doctrine and deceiving many cities and provinces by magical operations, till being at Rome in the reign of the Emperor Claudius, he boasted that he could fly. And when exhibiting before the emperor in the Senate, St. Peter and St. Paul being present, who knew that his flying was occasioned by magic, prayed to God that the people might be undeceived and that his power might fail in consequence of which he came tumbling down and died soon after of his bruises. This account comes in a most questionable shape and has no evidence which can challenge our assent. To me, it and the rest of, of the things spoken of Simon the sorcerer appear utterly unworthy of credit. Here's another quote by Clark. The tale of his having an altar erected to him at Rome with the inscription to the holy god Simon has been founded on an utter mistake and is long ago and has been long ago sufficiently confuted. So you see, Simon had a terrible reputation. Whether it was true or not is debated by the scholars. So if his reputation was as bad as it could be, then his attitude in saying, please pray for me, is not an attitude of repentance, but rather, a, well, it could be an attitude of fear. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm going to perish with my silver. Please pray to the Lord for me. <laughs> Or it could be a matter of sarcasm. Oh, I'm going to die with myself. Huh? Well, why don't you just pray for me, Simon, so nothing can happen to me? Well, it could be sarcasm, but that's that's really stretching it. It's logically possible. In my humble opinion, it just sounds to me like he was humble and repentant of his simonious attitude. Acts verse 28, verse 25. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, that's Peter and John, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Now remember, Jesus had originally told the disciples not to preach in Samaria. This is in Matthew 10:5. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road leading to other nations and don't enter any Samaritan town. 
That's because at the very beginning, Jesus was focusing on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wanted to concentrate his resources. He didn't want to spread all over the, all over the place. But now, that command not to go to the Samaritans was superseded by a new one, as John Gill points out. That's in Acts 1.8. This is down in Bethany right before he ascended to the Father. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. That happened at Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So witness time. This is fulfillment of Acts 1.8. The apostles are up there witnessing in Samaria and Stephen. We go to verse 26 of verse 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. Well, the road for Jerusalem is sort of in the southern central part of Israel. Gaza is on the west coast right there on the Mediterranean Sea at the southern southwestern extremity of Israel. So the road would have to go, I guess, west and south to get down there. And Philip's all up north of Jerusalem in Samaria. So he had to get up and go south to get down to that road. <clears throat> now, Philip, as we see later, lived in Caesarea, which was much further north in this desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he was told to go somewhere that wasn't his home. Why? Because God wanted somebody to get converted. Probably a key official, although we don't know that. I'm just speculating. The Ethiopian eunuch. And notice that an angel spoke to Philip, not the Holy Spirit directly. I don't know why God does that. Angels are used four times in the book, mentioned four times in the book of Acts. Twice, I think, referring to the angel in the burning bush at Jerusalem. But once when Peter was in the cell, an angel of the Lord appeared and broke him out of the cell. I thought, where was that? The Philippi, in Philippi, I think it was. And so angels are all around, all, all around. There was an angel that struck down Herod Agrippa I when he took too much glory in the amphitheater at Caesarea and died from worms thereafter. There was an angel. So God uses angels, the ministering spirits, as the book of Hebrews said. I don't know why the Holy Spirit couldn't have just spoken to Philip. In fact, we're going to see here in just a little bit that the Holy Spirit directly told one of some of the apostles where to go. So an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go down to this road. This is the desert road. Now, who was this angel? Here's what John Zick Gill says. To inquire who this angel was, whether Michael or Gabriel or the tutelar angel of Ethiopia or of the eunuch in other words, the eunuch's personal angel, or a Philip, Philip's personal angel, angel, is too curious, Gill says. That means, don't look into this. You're being too curious. It was one of the ministering spirits sent forth by Christ. That's all we can say. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, the distance from Jerusalem to Gaza was about 50 miles, according to the NIV Study Bible, so you can get a feel for the distances here. And the word that says, get up and go, John Gill says that phrase denotes readiness, alacrity, and expedition. In other words, don't be slow about it. Get up and go down there quick. Why? Because God wanted that Ethiopian unit to get saved. This is an example of how when God wants you to get saved, he's going to send somebody to you. And he's going to get the job done. Acts 8.27, so he, Philip, got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man. Ethiopia is south of Egypt, right there at the upper parts of the Nile River. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. Now, Ethiopia was in the Upper Nile region, as I mentioned, from the first cataract at Aswan to Khartoum. If you're familiar with that geography down there, that's the NIV Study Bible says that's where Ethiopia was. Now, this eunuch was not responsible for the conversion of Ethiopia, as Adam Clark says. Some have said so, but... 
Clark says Ethiopia was probably converted by a guy named Frumentius some 300 years later. That's a shame that church history doesn't have conversions by Candace. It would make a great story, but I'm sure this high official, this treasurer, went back to Ethiopia and started talking and getting people saved. I'm convinced of it. Candace is a traditional title of the Queen Mother. In other words, not necessarily a personal name, but it could be a title, kind of like Pharaoh. The Queen Mother was responsible in Ethiopia for performing secular duties of the reigning king because the king was thought to be too sacred to be getting his hands dirty by doing practical governmental things. Why was this Ethiopian treasurer on his way to Jerusalem to worship? Perhaps he was a full-fledged proselyte, proselyte of righteousness, according to the NIV Study Bible. Maybe he was just a God-fearer, according to the NIV Study Bible. We don't know, but obviously Judaism had spread its wings, and people down there in Ethiopia were, were Jews or proselytes to Judaism. We remember that the Queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem, too, to see Solomon later on. Sheba was somewhere down there in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, so Judaism had a big, big spread, big influence. I said later on, I meant earlier. By, by about 900 years. And, of course, the Ethiopian unit could have been coming up to celebrate the recently concluded Feast of Pentecost, according to Jamin Fawcett and Brown. Now, he could, he was a, he's called a eunuch. Now, he could be a true emasculated eunuch, or he could just be an official, because sometimes eunuchs became a general term for a monarch's official. Oftentimes, people were emasculated so they wouldn't monkey around with the king's harem, and if they were emasculated, they couldn't do anything, and everybody knew it. I read somewhere, they did this in China all the time, and I read something about Chinese eunuchs and talked about all the physical problems that occurred when they did that, when they emasculated people. It was psychological problems, physical problems. You had to pay a price to be a eunuch. But at any rate, we go to verse 28. This and the Ethiopian eunuch, eunuch was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Now, he was probably resting on the way. I don't think he was reading as he was riding because he'd be bouncing all over the place and how would Philip catch up to him? He was heading back to Ethiopia. If you look at that road to Gaza, Gaza is the, on the, right there at the southwestern corner of the Mediterranean Sea as it turns and becomes Egypt. So Gaza is right next to Egypt. You go to Egypt, get to the Nile, then you go straight down to the Nile, you get to Ethiopia, and that's where he was going. But he was resting, I think, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud, and we'll see in just a minute what part of Isaiah he was reading. Isaiah was a good book to be reading because it had lots of messianic prophecies, and he had heard a lot of messianic stuff in Jerusalem recently, I'm sure through the activities of the apostles and the believers there evangelizing. So he, may, he might have been trying to figure out what's all this messianic stuff about. He was reading aloud, the NIV Study Bible says, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown also, say that this was a customary practice back then, to read aloud. In fact, he may have been reading to his charioteer, the guy driving his chariot. We go to verses 29 and 30 of Acts 8. The Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. Here's the example I was asked, uh, talking about just a minute ago. The angel told Philip to go down to the road, but then the Holy Spirit told Philip to go and join the chariot. Why one time the angel did it and the other time the Holy Spirit did it, I don't know. But at any rate, the Holy Spirit told Philip, and by the way, this is a controversial thing about leadership of the Holy Spirit. There are so many, especially reform types, the intellectual types, the eggheads. They're constantly saying, well, now the Holy Spirit can't directly lead you because, he, because you might mix that up with your desires and emotions and you might do something stupid, which is absolutely true. And this is the way I always handle that. I said, yeah, but here we have an example of the Holy Spirit leading somebody with that internal impression or leading, as people say. 
And I know, I, I what is that book by Freeze? It's got about five million copies all over the world. It says that when you're led by God, you can just pick option A and option B, and whichever one you want to, God will say, yeah, that's good. You can do that. I, I'll, I'll bless you with that. I don't think that's the way God operates, in my humble opinion, although I have to admit the book was artfully written and hard to refute. But right here we have a passage here that says the Holy Spirit told Philip how. John Gill says, was it an audible voice? John Gill says, was it an inward impulse? I suspect it is an inward impulse. And it was not, as Kim Riddlebarger says, the word in the sacrament. That's the only way we can be led by God, the word in the sacrament. Well, the, <laughs> the Bible didn't lead Philip to go talk to the Ethiopian unit. The Holy Spirit did. That's not to denigrate the Bible, of course, because we're getting ready to talk about the Bible in Isaiah. The Word and the Spirit work together, folks. They ain't opposed to one another. Now, successful evangelism depends on being at the right place at the right time, which means you need to listen to the Holy Spirit before you willy-nilly begin to witness in somebody. Think about Peter as he was getting ready to go to witness up in Cornelius' house in Caesarea, Philip's hometown. Acts 10:19. while Peter was thinking about the vision, that's the vision of the animals in the sheet, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. So the Holy Spirit told him something subjective, and then, whoo, objectively, it came to pass, three men came to look for him. We can look in Acts 16, 6 through 7, as we look at how people are led by the Holy Spirit. They, this is the apostolic band on the, I think it's the second journey, one of the missionary journeys, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. Well, that could have been the Holy Spirit used circumstances to keep him from speaking in Asia. Verse 7, or it could be that direct leading of the Holy Spirit, an impression, an internal impression. Verse 7, when they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, is that external circumstances, or is that the Holy Spirit directly speaking to the apostles? Well, this is what I always say. I, I believe in being led by the Holy Spirit. I usually don't tell other people about it, though, because you can't objectively guarantee it. Let's say, oh, I was led to take this job here. And I'm convinced of it, that the Holy Spirit led me to take the job. And then I tell somebody, the Lord told me to go there. And then all, I run into all kinds of persecution and disaster at the job. Well, that doesn't mean that God didn't tell me to take that job. He might have told me to take that job so that I can be there for the deliverance from the job or for, so that I can learn something through suffering. I don't know. God could have told me that, but then it's hard to justify that to somebody on the outside. So that's why I, you have to make the distinction between something that's subjective and objective. If God tells you something, well, fine. But don't go around telling other people, God led me, because it, it creates. Because it so often happens, people say, God led me to, not, to believe that there's four persons in the Trinity. And I've had people tell me this, God told me that there's going to be a pre-trib rapture. Uh-uh. I don't believe that anymore, and I can fly to the moon. So we need to be careful about that. But... Just because it's abused doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit does not speak directly to Christians. So Philip ran up to the chariot after the Spirit told him to go and join that chariot. And I'm assuming the chariot's at the rest stop. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him, Philip heard the Ethiopian eunuch, reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Now, first of all, let's talk about how did Philip run up to it. It's easy just to say the chariot was at rest, the horse was resting, and Philip just went up. John Gill says that Philip followed the chariot and waited for it to stop. <laughs> I guess it, like, like a policeman pulling the chariot over, maybe. 
I don't know if that's so because I don't see how you read in a chariot. It's bouncing all over the road. Back then, I bet they bounced like crazy. They didn't have shocks in those chariots. Hard to read while you're while you're driving. So we're going to assume the chariot was stopped. Philip runs up, and Philip, perfect. Wow, this is a perfect witnessing opportunity. You're reading? Oh, you're reading the Bible? Oh, you're reading the prophet Isaiah? Philip knows that there's a lot of messianic passages in Isaiah, and so he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? I'll be glad to explain it to you. By the way, uh, what language was the Ethiopian eunuch using as he read out the prophet Isaiah? Probably Lee, probably the Septuagint. Uh, Adam Clark, in fact, says the quotation that we're going to see in, in the next couple of verses appears to be the, from the Greek Septuagint. Greek was a common language in Egypt and everywhere else. It was all over the place. We go to verse 31 in Acts 8. How can I, how can I understand, he, the Ethiopian eunuch, said, unless someone guides me. So we invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Note that it usually takes somebody to explain the scriptures. I know a lot of testimonies, Gideon Bible type testimonies, when people find a Bible, they read something to get saved. Yeah, that's true. That happens. But usually you need somebody to explain it to you. Catholics take this so far as to say that Scripture always needs an quote-unquote authorized interpreter, a priest, a member of the church to explain something to me, to which I say baloney sausage. Find somebody to explain it to you and then let them explain it to you. It doesn't have to be a priest. <laughs> that was Adam Clark's complaint. If there's something to be said bad about the Catholic Church, Adam Clark will be right on the job. Now, notice how polite this Ethiopian eunuch was. How can I, unless someone guides me, invites Philip to come up and sit? How polite. A gesture of great humanity and courteousness, as Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. He wasn't acting insolent like a big shot, and he was a big shot. He could have instantly accused Philip, who was a stranger. He could have accused Philip of interrupting him while he was reading. But he didn't do that. He had a humble heart. Acts 8, 32-33. Now, the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a sham, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading is from Isaiah 53, 7-8. Now, I'm going to give you the Holman Christian Study Bible translation of Isaiah 53, 7-8, which is... I just read the Holman Christian Study Bible translation of Acts 32-33, and you'll see it's close. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. This is obviously referring to Jesus in Acts 8-32 in the Ethiopian eunuch's version, the Ethiopian eunuch reads, Who will describe his generation? In Isaiah, in the translation I just read, it says, Who will consider his fate? That word generation is a little bit confusing. Uh, Isaiah said his fate, and Adam Clark says it means his matter of life. Excuse me, his manner of life, not his matter, his manner of life. And uh, at any rate, this passage obviously refers to Jesus. How? Well, first of all, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. A sheep does not flinch, does not fight, does not kick up a fuss before it, he's slaughtered, either before the slaughterhouse or before a temple sacrifice. And that was just like Jesus, who died voluntarily and willingly. He didn't fight, flinch, fight, kick up a fuss, scream and holler and 
yell curses at his persecutors, talk about how unjust he was, it was to kill an innocent man. He just went to the cross. So a sheep perfectly represents Jesus' innocence, meekness, and patience, as John Gill says. It's interesting that there was a heathen custom to refuse sacrificial animals who struggled against the sacrifice, considered unlucky to put such an animal on the, on the altar. So that was well known. Sheep didn't fight. The passage in Isaiah says that he, the suffering servant, the sheep going to the slaughter, the Messiah, does not open his mouth. Jesus did not try to defend himself before the Sanhedrin and Herod's kangaroo courts, all those hearings during his crucifixion. Now, one time he was adjured by Herod, now, and he was required to answer legally when put to an oath. So he did, uh, he did uh, defend himself when required to. And also, one time he was slapped on the cheek, and he says, "Hey, what have I done that's wrong?" And he he objected to the unjust procedure there. So it's not like he just sat there and, and completely took it all the time. But generally, he knew he was cooked in the physical sense. He knew that he was going to get killed. He knew that all the way back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cross to me. And then he realized, nope, that's not going to happen. And he, he didn't fight when he got arrested. When he was mocked on the cross, Jesus did not revile back, as John Gill says. He said, Father, forgive them. Most criminals don't say that kind of thing. Now, here's an interesting point, which I really don't know if it's true or not. But when Isaiah says, who will describe his generation? Who will describe his generation? Now, I just take that to mean if generation is matter of life, manner of life, Jesus' manner of life was so remarkable that no one can describe it. And I think that's the easiest way to interpret that. But Adam Clark says that this is an allusion to a custom of the Jews that they had at execution. As a criminal was being taken away for execution, some would call out, Is there anyone who could speak in behalf of the character of the criminal? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer would be no, because he's a, he's a criminal. But in Jesus' case, the, the, the custom was not carried out. Nobody called out. Can you speak on behalf of the character of, of the criminal? And so that, according to Clark, fulfills this phrase, who will describe his manner of life? No one will call out. Can you speak on behalf of the character of the criminal? I think that is a real stretch. But I thought I'd mention it because it, it was interesting. All right, so we, now we go to verses 34 and 35 of Acts 8. The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or another person? Well, now we know from hindsight, of course, it's referring to Jesus. But the Ethiopian eunuch didn't know, so he asked. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. So he used the Old Testament prophecy to witness about Jesus. Isaiah himself had suffered under Manasseh, if you know the story of Isaiah. So it was plausible that those suffering servant passages could have applied to Isaiah himself. But Stephen disabuses the eunuch of that erroneous notion. We go to verse 36 in Acts 8. As they were traveling down the road, that's the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Now, the eunuch instinctively knew that what Christians do is they get saved and they get baptized. None of this catechumen classes where you have to go and wait and wait and wait and go week after week to these classes and learn about the faith. And then when you graduate, you can get baptized. And then when you get baptized, you can go into the main service. That's nonsense. That's medieval nonsense. The New Testament pattern was you get saved you get baptized. Remember in Acts 10, in Cornelius' house in Philip's hometown, Holy Spirit fell, and what's the first thing the apostles did after they saw all those people speaking in tongues and praising God and glorifying God? was the first thing they said. 
Get them some water. Get them baptized. And so now it could be that Philip explained this to the eunuch. That's how he knew. I suspect that's what happened. So as Philip, as Stephen probably said, okay, after you believe in Jesus and then you get baptized, and then, they saw, and then the eunuch saw water. said, oh, let's get baptized. So we go to verses 37 and 38. Now, verse 37 is probably not in the original text. I'll read that first. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he, and Philip said, if you, the eunuch, believe with all your heart, you, the eunuch, may. You may get baptized. And he, the eunuch, replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, the NIV cuts that out of the main text, puts it in the margin. It says some late manuscripts have this. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that this verse is wanting in the, orig in the principal manuscripts and most venerable versions of the New Testament. It seems to have been added from the formularies for baptism which came into current use. And that does sound like a baptismal ritual saying, a formalistic type saying. I believe, I believe, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, so we're going to leave that verse out. Now let's notice that in verse 38, he... The eunuch ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. Now, this proves immersion. I don't know how else to say it. I know people get all upset, especially if you're a Presbyterian, about saying uh, you're sprinkling babies. You know, actually, the mode of baptism is not that controversial. What's controversial is baptizing babies who don't believe yet, because most of the time, in the, all of the times in the Scripture, you see people getting baptized, they believe, and how can babies believe? And plus, we don't want to drown the poor kid, so we sprinkle him instead. So that's how the mode of baptism gets tied into something more controversial is who gets baptized. Well, they went down into the water. Now, sprinklers and pourers will defend that, and they'll say, well, they walked into the water, and then Philip reached down, got some water, and sprinkled it on the Ethiopian's head. And I don't believe that anymore and believe I can fly to the moon. What's the need to go down to the water? They could have just gotten a canteen out and sprinkled him in the chariot. <laughs> so... John Gilpoint said, said they could have done it in the chariot if it's just sprinkling. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, uh, he's a poor. He says, probably laving the water upon him. Laving means picking it up with your hands and then kind of pouring it over the head of the subject. Probably laving the water upon him, though the precise mode is neither certain nor of any consequence. Well, look, I, I did a pouring one time. I was in China. The young woman that was saved was dying of cancer, and she could not go under the water. So we had a church meeting, and we all gathered into a little tiny Chinese bathroom. All of us could get in there. It was pretty cramped. And uh, I got a, some water in a bucket, and I poured it over that young woman's head. And I still remember that because it was painful. She was miraculously saved when Jesus appeared to her in a hospital room, took her pain away. And then she got cancer, and it, and it went in remission for a long time, then it came back. So we got to know her. And so it, it, I remember that baptism. I remember it well. And, I'm, and that baptism was perfectly valid, perfectly valid. So I'm not saying that you can't pour, but in, under ordinary circumstances, if you got the water, go down into it and baptize. I remember I was baptizing another young 19-year-old Chinese girl, and we had the only water. We, it's hard in China because you can't do it in the open because somebody might arrest you. And so we were in some hotel room, and I had my wife and two and a, another couple. So what is that? Four of us, and plus the the 19-year-old girl. And the bathtubs in China are short, you know, because Chinese people aren't as big as us. And the bathroom was small, so we had four adults gathered around that tub and the baptizee in the tub. And doggone it, 
she couldn't fit in the water. If you put her head under, her knees would come out because she had to scrunch up. And then if you put her knees under, her head would pop out. So I'm pushing on her knees, trying to get the knees under the water, and her head pops out. Then I push on her head, put the head under the water, and the knees would pop out. I was trying to get her totally immersed. That shows how I believe in immersion. I remember one time I heard just recently uh, some Reformed Baptists who were on a Reformed podcast, not podcast, I'm sorry, Facebook page, whatever you call it. And they got into such rip-roaring controversies over infant baptism that she said it got nasty and ugly and she had to get off. And this was the podcast where that she had been led to marry her her husband. <laughs> and I also I was listening to another Reformed podcast and... I think these reformed people were believed in immersion, and he and he it looked he sounded like he was carrying an atom bomb in a suitcase. He was so careful. I don't want to offend anybody. People really get upset over this issue. Not me. I say baptize them, put them in the water. All right. So, and by the way, in verse thirty-eight, when it says he ordered the chariot to stop, that could be Stephen, but it's most probably the Ethiopian eunuch ordered the chariot to stop because it's his chariot. He was excited about getting baptized. Verses 39 through 40. When they, that Stephen, excuse me, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when they came up out of the water, again, does that sound like pouring to you? Does that sound sprinkling? Does that sound like they were immersed? The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing, headed back to Ethiopia. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Caesarea is his hometown. It's about 60 miles up the coast there. On the Mediterranean coast, Azotus is the Old Testament Ashdod, one of the five Philistine cities down there, and the Shephelah, I think it is, on the plain. As you go down toward the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Ashdod or Azotus was about 19 miles from Gaza and about 60 miles from Caesarea. So he had about 79 miles to go to get back home, and he spent his time evangelizing as he went back to his home. And by the way, he stayed at Caesarea for years after that, 20 years later, in Acts 21, 8, we have another sight of Philip in Caesarea, Acts 21, 8-9. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This, the seven, that means the seven deacons in Acts 6. The home of Philip the Evangelist. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So he settled down. He was an evangelist who settled down in his hometown and did his work all of his life there. Caesarea, I've been there. It's an interesting place. It became the capital of Judah of Judea after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Before it was the home of Roman governors, Herod Antipas was living there, or well, excuse me, was staying there during the crucifixion and came from Caesarea up to Jerusalem to help out Pontius Pilate. It's preserved there. It's the stone harbor, the levees out into the water. There's a there's a, a place where they have a coin, or maybe it's not a coin, an inscription that has that Pontius Pilate's names in it. So that was recently found, I think, and they and they show you that plus a bunch of Roman statuary all over the place, uh, and you get to look at it, the sea, and how beautiful it is. It was an interesting place, it's a big big town there. But anyway, um, Stephen, uh, Philip, Philip heads back to Caesarea, evangelizing as he goes. And again, this fits in with the theme of Acts, which is the spread of the gospel. Now it's gone to Samaria. Now it's going to go to Caesarea, as we'll take that up later on. Before we leave this passage, we need to note that this phrase, this verse right here in verse 39 says, The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And so many people say that Philip was, quote-unquote, transported bodily, like, like beam me up, Scotty, on Star Trek, 
as he went from the road to Gaza, from Jerusalem to Gaza, as he went from there to Azotus. I don't believe that. I mean, in my opinion, there's so many miracles in the New Testament, what do we need to invent more for? It just meant the Holy Spirit gave him an impression and said, let's get out of here, Philip, let's go on, and on we go. Now, let's see what learned opinion says about this. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown actually believe that Philip was carried away bodily in the air. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. To deny, as Meyer, Olshausen, and Bloomfield do, the miraculous nature of Philip's disappearance is vain. Well, I don't know why it's vain, but you see that big shot commentators of Jameson Fawcett and Brown's day in the 19th century, I don't know these guys, Meyer, Olshausen, and Bloomfield, they all denied it. They just said the Holy Spirit led Philip away. Adam Clark, God bless him, he says that, no, what this means is the Holy Spirit suggested to Philip that he withdraw abruptly, and I think that's exactly what it means. Again, you can't prove it one way or the other. I'm not going to get on a hill and defend it to the death, but it's, I, you know, plenty of miracles. We don't need to make up another. Well, what's the point? I don't see what the point is. Why can't, if 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 Philip is translated, transformed, not transformed, translated, I guess is the word, from the road to Azotus, he's not going to be doing any evangelism on the way. The whole point of this is his evangelism. He's Philip the evangelist. He's evangelizing people. But he's boop, carried away. He's not going to be doing any evangelism on the way. So, with that minor point, we now conclude our discussion of Acts 8, and we prepare next for our next audio in Acts 9, when Paul, when Saul becomes Paul, when Paul becomes converted, changes from being a persecutor of the gospel to a propagator of the gospel. We'll see you next time, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.